Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Soderstrom. John is a strategic advisor for technology commercialization in the Office of Provost at Yale University. Prior to his role in the Office of Provost, John was the Managing Director of the Office of Cooperative Research, also known as OCR, at Yale. During his time with the OCR, John helped form more than 25 new ventures, including Molecular Staging, Agilix, Achillion Pharmaceuticals, Phytoceutica, Prometrics, Iconic Therapeutics, Applied Spinal Technologies, Historex, Vaccinate, Affimix, Coltan Pharmaceuticals, Arvinus, and Artesian Bioscience. Collectively, these companies have raised over $500 million in professional venture capital. In addition, the OCR helped create the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute to help undergraduate, graduate, and professional school students at Yale start scalable new ventures. Over 100 new ventures have been formed that have raised over $135 million in investment capital. Prior to his time at Yale, John was the director of program development for Oak Ridge National Laboratory after serving for 10 years as the director of technology licensing for Martin Marietta Energy Systems. In the Office of Technology Transfer, John directed a group of 10 professionals responsible for negotiating licenses and cooperative research and development agreements. John was a founding board member and past president of the Association of Federal Technology Transfer Executives as well as a member of the Licensing Executive Society and Autumn, where he was in 2008 president and from 2003 to 2005 vice president for public policy, as well as a member of the executive committee of the board of directors. John is frequently asked to lecture and teach seminars on the various aspects of the technology commercialization process and economic development, both within the United States and abroad. John has testified before Congress on technology transfer issues and served as an expert witness in patent infringement litigations. In addition to his professional accomplishments, John was honored as the 87th Point of Light by President George H.W. Bush in March 1990 for volunteer work with low-income families in East Tennessee to build and rehabilitate housing and provide other essential services. John received his PhD from Northwestern in 1980 and his BA from Hope College in 1976. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> Glad to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast, John. It's really great to have you here. And I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in New Haven and at Yale? Yeah, I can give you the long or the short version, but um, 
the abbreviated abridged version is actually my interest started when I was in graduate school at Northwestern. And um, I was actually doing work between um, essentially measurements and, and program evaluation and looking at um, industrial engineering, management science. And it was this, um, it was the, the interest in science indicators, uh, which is how do you measure productivity and research and the like. Um, that got me really interested into the whole study of innovation. Um, and pr my particular interest, because it's more of a personal interest having to do with my father and work that he was doing late in his career with people like um, Sam Walton at Walmart, designing the regional warehouse systems for Walmart, working with Fred Smith, actually flying with Fred Smith and designing the initial um, FedEx facility, so dealing with some of the great entrepreneurs of the 20th century, that I really got interested in just understanding what was what led to successful innovation, particularly from entrepreneurs. And when I um, finished my PhD, I actually did something. I went back to Oak Ridge National Laboratory, where I had started as a co-op student when I was an undergrad. And while I was there, even though that's not where I really started at Oak Ridge, I got the opportunity to actually do a, um, an evaluation of a program called the Energy Related Inventions Program at the Department of Energy, which put me in touch with a great group of people who had been studying innovation for a long time. So there, there's, there's this through line that, that starts there. But eventually, I started looking at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and asking the question, why aren't we better? at you know, commercializing the innovations coming out of Oak Ridge, et cetera. And what that led to through a confluence of events was a phone call from the director of Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, Herman Postma, um, who basically posed the question, didn't post it as a question. He said, Soderstrom, you've got the opportunity to put up or shut up. <laughs> and I was like, well, what does that mean? And he goes, well, if you're so damn smart, you get to run the program. Wow. Or you get to stop criticizing it. Well, that's a sort of a Austian bargain. Exactly. So I, um, I decided to say, okay, um, which meant that I was going to stop doing something I really liked, which is doing research and publishing and all those kinds of things and really go do it. And so for the next... 12 years. That's what I did. Um, and that's how I got to know people like Joe Allen at the Department of Commerce and, and Senators Bai and Dole and others from, from the Bai-Dole thing, because we were on the outside. Because we're, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is a government-owned contractor operated, and the contractors are big, in our case, Martin Marietta and then Lockheed. Um, but we still had the same issues of which is we need to control. We need to be able to um, make decisions about how technologies are going to be commercialized. And you need the, the flexibility to be able to do that real time that comes from actually being engaged directly with the, the, the scientist inventors who are actually talking to people out in the real world who are interested in the technologies. Um, so I did that and, and we actually made some, you know, actually pioneered some things. We did the very first um, cooperative research and development agreements, CRADAs. Um, we were instrumental in, in developing revisions to the law 
Uh, we worked together with Joe and Norm Lacker and some of the other pioneers. Um, it was a heady time. Um, but I got a call um, from a recruiter, which happened to have been a recruiter that was that Joe Allen had suggested to the recruiter that they talked to me. Um, that probably goes more to speak to Joe Allen's judgment than anything else. Um, but they asked if I would be interested in um, in uh, considering a position at uh, Yale, and I said no. <laughs> and I actually said no a couple of times. And finally, I, I think more as a way of just sort of making it go away, I said, okay, here's my here's my my CV and resume. And not expecting anything out of it because I frankly I wasn't interested. I, I loved Oak Ridge. I loved what was going on there. I was involved in the community and thought this is where I was going to live the rest of my career. And what happened is um, nothing for a while. Didn't hear anything which is not uncommon. So I just let it slide. And the later on, I got a call from the recruiter saying, um, Yale has, has changed. They were looking for somebody to direct their tech transfer program. And they found somebody who was going to be in an interim, but that, that person is looking for people who would be willing to join his team. I'm going, well, I'm running a program here. Why would I join somebody else's team? I mean, that, that does, that's not even a lateral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so she goes, well, but it's really different because he's not going to be there for a long time. He really is looking for somebody that he could, you know, groom as a successor. And I'm going, I still, you know, why? Anyway, um, again, I, she said, would you we still be willing to be considered? I said, fine, because I didn't, I really didn't think anything was going to happen. Well, lo and behold, I get a call. And it's the person, and his name is Greg Gardner. And Greg had um, just finished, he had retired after 25 years at Pfizer. Um, he had been coerced, <laughs> um, strong arm, twisted arm twist, whatever you want to call it, to um, step in and try to transform the tech transfer program at, at Yale. And to say that our initial conversation went smoothly, would be a joke because after the conversation was over, my assistant who had been kind of eavesdropping because it really turned into a kind of an argument. Oh, my. Um, she said, what was that all? I, don't worry about it. Never going to hear from that guy again because, you know, he was challenging my credentials. You know, what would make, you know, he goes, I had asked the recruiter to give me the top three candidates and one was a, you know, a PhD biochemist who was running business development at a large a biotech on the West Coast. The other was, you know, a Yale-trained person who had a PhD who was working with big pharma. And then yours. From what I can see, you have no biopharmaceutical experience whatsoever. And, you know, so what's your name doing on this list? And I go, well, why in the heck are you asking me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ask her. She gave you the top three candidates, not me. Um, so it, it was just, it was like that. So I, I really, no expectations. And lo and behold, five days later, I get a call from the recruiter again. And, like, and she goes, I don't know what you said to Greg, but he really would like to meet you face to face. And I'm going, seriously? I mean, I, I, that was I, the most unexpected comment ever. 
it just floored me. And she said, would you be willing to come up to New Haven? I said, no. <laughs> Why would I want to go to New Haven? Well, that's where Yale is. I said, I don't really have time to just you know, get into New Haven. It's not going to be easy. I said, I've got to give a talk in a couple of weeks in New York City at the Hyatt at Grand Central. Um, you know, if he wants to talk to me, I'd be glad to meet him there. So we did. And trust me, even that conversation did not begin auspiciously. Oh, my. <laughs> and, but I'll save that. It's a different story. But we ended up, we were scheduled to meet for an hour. We talked for three hours. We connected on so many different levels, on so many different things. Forget about, you know, commercializing biopharmaceutical inventions from an academics. We connected on just the way we looked at life, um, how we had grown up, what our initial aspirations were. Um, he had actually gone to Georgetown originally to go into the priesthood. I had originally gone to a small Christian liberal arts college, Hope College, to go into the ministry. I, it just, it was mind boggling. But more, more important is how we viewed the commercialization process for innovation. And, and it was like, we were the yin and the yang. It was just amazing. And I remember his last question, because I had to go, I had to, I had to go catch a flight. And so I, I, I could have talked to this guy for hours. And the last question as I'm walking out the door, he looks at me and goes, so does remember, if you're so damn smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> My. And without thinking, I just shot back. I said, if I wanted to be rich, I would have worked on Wall Street. But then I would have been the most unhappy human being on the face of the earth because that's not, money isn't what turns me on. And I was out the door. Well, as it turns out, that last comment was something that he actually had thought of himself because the same thing could have been said for him. And it was. Um, he had decided that he was more into building things, into creating, which is what I am. And it wasn't about the money. The money comes from doing things well and doing them right, not from chasing money. And that was one of the things we absolutely saw. So anyway, long story short, he I tell him, don't I I this has become very interesting, but my wife, you know, geez, this is gonna be hard because I got kids, we got roots, you know. Um but he finally convinced us uh, to come up and uh, visit. And I said, but don't make me a job. Don't make me an offer. This is just a visit to see if my wife could actually envision moving to New Haven, et cetera. Um, well, obviously that went well. It went very well. Um, but Greg's proposition to me was, listen, come and work for me. I, you know how to do deals. You know how to do all that stuff. I will teach you this industry. I will, con you know, we will connect in all the various ways that you have to connect. And at such time as you are ready, I will step aside. And I figured, well, that's three to five years from now. That's great. And frankly, I like this guy. This guy is going to teach me a ton of stuff, which, by the way, he did. Um, because Greg was well known in the industry. Everybody liked him. They trusted him. They respected him. What he had done at Pfizer was amazing. The number of people that followed this guy around, I mean, was just phenomenal. I mean, there is a whole club of Greg out there. Um, and I get to be one of the faithful alums of that group. And he showed me the ropes in a way that mentors don't necessarily do. It was a 
fabulous learning experience. And so I'm having a great time. And like three years into it, he walks in one day and he just says, you know what? It's time for me to go. And I'm going, what? Oh my. We're just getting started. What do you mean you're going to go? He goes, John, you can do this. I go, no, 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 no. We had a deal. You were going to teach. I still got so much to learn. He goes, no, you got, you got this. And and I'm not going anywhere. I'll be around. And, um, and he was good to that. Um, he was a great mentor, even after he decided to step aside, but that's how I got to where I am. Wow. That's an absolutely incredible story. And, and you lasted, you've been there, you know, over 25 years now. 25 years. Yeah, exactly. I thought this was going to be a short-term gig. Exactly. And, and in fact, at the end of June, I know you stepped down as the managing director of the OCR and you have a new role at Yale. But before we actually get into that new role for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the OCR, uh, I thought it would be helpful if you could tell us a little bit about it and all that you were able to accomplish um, there under your leadership over the, the past 25 years. Well, you know, in a sense, it's not unlike any other tech transfer office in the, at any other major research university. Um, we absolutely, you know, are working together with faculty to patent their inventions, to license them, et cetera, et cetera. We do all of those things, which you would uh, see associated with any academic technology transfer office. But we, we've we always aspired to be more. Um, we recognize that in order to do our job, you know, it's great that you have an invention, but inventions are not products. And products have to be developed, and that takes money, and it takes time, it takes talent, et cetera. And oftentimes, because ours are so nascent, so embryonic, you actually can't find anybody who's interested until it's actually been matured into something a little bit more um, concrete. And so, therefore, we we absolutely understood from the get-go that we were going to have to be in the business of starting businesses. Not because we wanted to start businesses, but because we had to start businesses, because we had to create licensees for our technology. And the other thing is, it's interesting, there's been this transition that's happened, this maturation that's in the process where faculty all have become, not when I started 25 years ago, but, but in the, particularly in the last decade, it is one of the metrics of merit for their career progression. You know, have they been involved in a startup or are they engaged with a company that's actually taking their technology forward into the clinic? Um, people use that. It doesn't necessarily impact, say, tenure decisions, but professional standing in the community. Um, it's well recognized. And, and the ultimate goal, particularly for people in the life sciences, is do you have a drug on the market or do you have something that's in clinical trials moving towards the market? And I've been blessed that I have a number of faculty, Yossi Schlesinger, with more than four. I think he may have five drugs on the market that, you know, in, in at least in the last couple of three cases, I've been able to help him start companies that have progressed those. Craig Cruz, who has a blockbuster drug, Kyprolis, where, you know, I was there at the beginning when we were trying to figure out how to, you know, patent it and then how to start the company and working with. Um, a group of um, amazing investors to get a company off the ground, which ultimately became acquired by Amgen for like $12 billion. Um, those, are, those are heady accomplishments. 
Um, but Craig's now, you know, done a couple more companies and they've gone public. And Yossi's done five that have gone public. So, uh, you know, I've been blessed with some pretty daggum creative uh, faculty with this. But we knew we were going to have to do that because those the investors and the entrepreneurs weren't necessarily wandering around New Haven at the time. In fact, I remember very early on when I was at Yale, maybe three or four months at Yale, um, there was a, a meeting with all the economic development people in the in the area. And, well, I hope I don't insult anybody by saying it was kind of a whining and complaining session. Where, oh, <laughs> what was us? You know, we're this small town between New York and Boston and everything that we start, you know, migrates to the West Coast or it goes to Cambridge. And, you know, um, we're never going to be a big deal. And so they're going around the room and, you know, what are you going to do to try to turn this around? And they got to me and I said, well, we've committed to do three to four venture backed startups per year and try to keep them in New Haven. And they laughed at me. Oh, wow. And I looked at him and, and seriously, I said, listen, I'm either the dumbest person who just rolled off the pumpkin truck because I just moved my family from heaven on earth, East Tennessee, to this place because I believed, or you're sitting on top of a gold mine and you don't know how to mine it. I think it's the latter, not the former. And I'm going to, we're going to prove it to you. And that's what we set out to do is basically prove that they were wrong. Um, and I, again, we benefited, we've got amazingly loyal alums. We got a huge, um, group of people who want Yale to be, in fact, as I was telling you earlier, unfortunately, we just buried one of the most important alums in this area, Fred Frank, who basically adopted me as a son and said, I will, I will work with you to make this happen because I believe in Yale and I want this for Yale. And he did. He was, and, and he introduced me to every, and that doesn't mean that they're going to do it, that they're going to put their money in, but, but they were willing to help. You know, when I was, when I was crazy, they told me I was crazy. When they had, when they, when they saw that we had something, they were going to make the connections and help us make it happen. And they understood that we were trying to do this in New Haven, Connecticut, and they were willing to vouch for us and they were willing to you know, stand beside us. And, and we have a huge team of people that you can't replicate anywhere else. So starting companies was always big, but also we knew companies wanted to partner with us. And so we wanted to start, you know, creating those kinds of strategic alliances because that can lead to the same kind of commercialization. And oftentimes those companies are looking to partner with our startups, for example. So, you know, we, it wasn't just licensing, because then I got to go find licensees. We had to create licensees or we had to bring them to us in the form of corporate partnerships. And so those are kind of the three legs of the stool that become the Office of Cooperative Research. Wow, that's that's absolutely incredible. And so you stepped away from that role and now you're a strategic advisor for technology commercialization there at Yale. Can you tell us a little bit about this new role that you're involved in? Yeah, it's a lot like the old one. Um, it's just that I'm not <laughs> responsible for day-to-day -day operations <laughs> or citing things. That anymore. might be a good thing, right? Yeah, I, it's time. I, you know, we're in the middle of a fundraising campaign that is going to focus on the sciences and integral to that entire aspect is doing more of what we do 
at an even larger scale. And that's going to take somebody who, you know, is going to be there for a long time. And, I, you know, I'm not going away. I'm not disappearing. I want, you know, I am absolutely, you cut me, I bleed blue nowadays. Um, I want this to be successful. I want this to continue. But I think we're at that wonderful inflection point where it's going to happen anyway. And so I found that that one of my weaknesses is that after a period of time, you know, I can get bored. Um, and and it's it's time for somebody who can focus in on these things and help, you know, take this to a different level than what I perhaps am inclined to do. But I fully expect that the successes are going to continue and they're going to multiply and it's going to be even better. And, you know, a year or so from now, they'll go, Sodas from who? Oops, <laughs> hey, we're at a very different point than we were. And that's a good thing. Um, there, this is an exciting time to be in New Haven and and around Yale and and seeing just some of the successful biotech companies that are just growing and emerging. And I want to I want to do more of that. And it's just I think, you know, there's an opportunity there to do that um, in a different way and still be a positive influence. And that's what I'm going to do. That's awesome. Well, John, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, over the course of your career, you've been a very strong advocate of the Bayh-Dole Act. Uh, you've testified before Congress on issues relating to tech transfer, and you were also the vice president for public policy at Autumn. Could you provide your thoughts on some of the attempts to try and weaken Bayh-Dole, specifically this continued discussion around drug pricing and margin rights? And then most recently, we have President Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Well, so this is a, the frustration here goes back 40 years, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, this is from the beginning. This has been something that people like Norm Lacker and Joe Allen and Senator Bayh and so many others, we have been trying to push back because, first of all, you know, nowhere in the plain reading of the text can you read price controls into this. I mean, that that just was not were seen, nor was it ever intended. But the thing is, it's it's also a simple matter of economics. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that we have is that there are people running around saying things like, well, the federal government paid for it. And I'm going, in what world do you think that the federal government paid for 100% of the development of a drug. And you know, if, if you want to talk about, yes, they paid for some of the basic science on which some of these drugs were based, I'll give you that. But that probably represents at the most, at the highest level, and this would be a real reach, 10% of the total cost. Because if you look at today, um, a, a new cancer therapy, it probably costs around a billion dollars. If not more. Probably more than a billion. I'm, yeah. I'm going to be conservative, a billion. So if anybody spent a hundred million in terms of federal government dollars, I mean, most people would shake their head and go, John, that, that, you know, maybe 10 million. So maybe 1%. But it, it just, that's just a, a patently untrue statement that people keep making is the federal government paid for it. So therefore, no. 
the federal government didn't pay. They paid a small fraction. The, the private sector, through investors, venture capitalists, corporate profits that were made from sales of other things, that's where the investment dollars came from. And I've had the good fortune of sitting on the boards of you know, a couple dozen biotechs who are trying to do it. So I know how hard this is. And I know how hard it is to raise the money, to spend it economically, productively, efficiently, et cetera. It, 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 it's not coming from the federal government. It, it's coming from people who invested in, in funds and said, I'm going to put my money here because I think I have a higher potential for a higher rate of return. If the higher rate of return comes from if we are successful, and Lord knows that's a crapshoot. It's a high, this is a high risk, long-term proposition, which by the way, has a lot of government regulations that go along with it that you have to overcome to get to that profit point. If you can't do that, if you can't see the way through, because you're going to lose money more often than you're going to make money. So on a net net basis, I got to see that I'm going to make more money than buying a CD from a bank or just investing in a mutual fund um, from Vanguard. If I can't see my way through to do that, I'm not going to do it. Exactly. I'm put my money somewhere else. And I'm going to, I'm going to personalize it saying, would you, Senator, Representative, would you write the check if you knew that if it were successful, after all the failures, you finally got one that was successful, it was going to be taken away from you? Or that the level of profit was going to be restricted? Would you make that investment? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the answer is probably no, because they'll put their money where they can make profit. And that's just economics freaking 101. People, go back to college, take economics. Sorry. Yes, I get a little passionate about this. <laughs> That's topic. okay. I, th- I think, you know, it, it's a conversation that continues. There's so much discussion on that. And, and I think you're absolutely right on that. That's, um, I share your feelings and your, your passion on that. I mean, if you want to create something that's going to stop competition, the promoting competition in the American economy executive order will do that very well. Thank you very much. It will have absolutely the unintended impact of doing exactly the opposite of what it says it's going to do. And we already have enough problems getting drugs for things that are orphan diseases and other things. So, you know. It's incredibly difficult to raise money. It's even more difficult to find talented human beings who can do this successfully. It's not like anybody can do this. And that's why I don't understand is why are we putting on something that's already difficult, high risk, long-term, highly regulated, we're going to add yet another barrier. And we think that is somehow going to help. I, I just, I'm at a loss. Because if it was, then why isn't Europe, which already has all kinds of price control mechanisms through UK's NICE program and the UK exactly. EU's program. If that were true, why isn't there more innovation coming from over there? Absolutely. No, it's moved to the United States. So it's a contraindicator of success. Regulation leads to less competition, not more. And, you know, Milton Friedman must be rolling over in his grave. (laughs) 
And going from one hot topic to another, I wanted to ask you, John, um, there's been a lot of discussion around patents impeding patients' access to life-saving treatments, in particular vaccines. And uh, as you're well aware, India and South Africa petitioned the WHO to waive patent rights on COVID-19 vaccines. And I know you've written articles explaining how IP rights don't impede access to life-saving drugs and vaccines. Uh, can you share your thoughts, which I'm sure are also very passionate on this topic as well, and what you think ultimately is going to happen with respect to this petition? Well, I I think, boy, after I just dissed all of you, <laughs> I'm going to say that thank you, Angela Merkel. Thank you, Macron, uh, Prime Minister Macron. You know, the Europeans saw this one as a, as a loser, you know, it, it's just, it, it's a huge mistake. Uh, uh, anything that weakens patent rights is a huge mistake because again, it takes away the investment incentive and the, the issue, nobody, there, there was not one shred of evidence that's been proposed that would actually suggest that this would have a positive impact because after all, the, the issue around the COVID vaccines and particularly the MRNAs was always going to be manufactured. And it's one, they're difficult to make. There was limited capacity. And even um, Bill Gates um, in the coalition of investors he had was focusing on the right topic, which is expanding manufacturing capacity as quickly as possible to meet demand. Um, because it was never about patent rights stopping anything. It was always going to be about how much manufacturing capacity do we have. Um, and we discovered very early on that even having adequate manufacturing capacity, it has to be quality manufacturing capacity because we saw what happened in terms of uh, the the uh, contamination in in a U.S. plant, which you know through the J and J vaccine for a loop for a long time, and so you know it, it, this is one of those areas that you have to be very careful that you actually manufacture something that is high quality efficacious and safe. And these were never going to be simple. And th that was going to always be the rate limiting step. And it still is to some extent, but I've, I've noticed even in the last week or so, there've been a number of announcements made by some of the major manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, and others about expanding capacity in Latin America, in South Africa, and other places under highly regulated, strictly enforced guidelines. Um, that I think is going to help alleviate some of these concerns. But it was never about patents on the vaccines per se. It was always about the manufacturing. It was always going to be the most difficult part. And it was. Now, switching gears again, John, I wanted to ask you, you know, there are these critics who argue that universities shouldn't be allowed to patent their inventions. And some who flat out have just stated that universities should get out of the patent business I'd like your thoughts on what your view is in response to these critics. Well, you know, I told you from the, the beginning, I mean, my actual original background experience was in um, research design um, and statistical analysis and the like. Um, good news is we've done that experiment. We've actually performed that experiment. We've got pre-Bidol and we got post-Bidol. Yep. So we know what the answer is. Exactly. I can look at the results pre bidol and I can look at the results post bidol and go, what changed? Okay, the industry was always interested in developing pharmaceuticals. I mean, let's face it, uh, Pfizer was in the penicillin development business in World War II and scaled up from there. Um, lots of uh, 
you know, there, there was an industry um, that was heavily engaged pre-Bidol. Post-Bidol, we got the biotechnology revolution and it's, it's going gangbusters and it's leading to um, uh, an acceleration in therapeutics and other technologies in support of advancements in healthcare that are just mind-boggling. So what changed? Bidol. Exactly. No. I mean, with Bidol came some other things. We 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 changed um, capital gains accounting so that uh, the venture capital industry came along. Coincidentally, it came at exactly the right time because so many of these technologies need to be nurtured and matured in startup companies that are the heartbeat of venture capital. And so, yes, there were some other changes that were made, but all of them are consistent in one way. It led to more commercialization coming out of the university academic research labs and into the stream of commerce than existed before 1980. So we did the experiment. We know the answer. Why do we want to repeat a failed experiment? It doesn't make any sense to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the other thing is I'm, I'm old enough to have seen all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> and others aren't. So I, I noticed this over and over again that people want to reinvent, you know, explanations for things. And I'm going, but I lived it. I know how this works. Um, I was there. I was actually studying it. I mean, my doll came at a time when I was actually, this was what I was doing for a living was studying this stuff. So, I, you know, this was a brilliant move on the parts of Senators Bayh and Dole. Um, they, I don't know that they foresaw what was going to happen, at least at the scale, but boy, was it brilliant. Yeah, it really was. And as a follow-up to uh, that particular question, I wanted to ask you, how are university patents important to public-private partnerships with industry? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because people talk about corporate philanthropy as if there were companies running around giving gifts. Um, there may have been a time when that happened. Um, I'm not very familiar with it. But anytime a company um, approaches a university and wants to partner on a technology, the, the question they're going to always ask is, if this works, who's going to own the technology? Who's going to control it? And, you know, again, I would ask the question on a personal basis, if you were being asked, to invest in a technology, do you want to just give away the rights? No. I mean, if it's going to work, you'd like to participate in the upside, right? I mean, I mean, I don't have enough money that I can give it away like that. Um, and most corporations can't either um, because they have lots of demands on their profits from within the company itself. So we, as an external um, uh, demand on it, they're certainly going to want to be able to capitalize on it. So you know, it's the, the answer is it is always going to be important. And, you know, it, it's always funny because it always ends up being a, a bit of a backdoor because they start off by saying, hey, we'd like to partner. And everybody's, yay. And, and oh, by the way, we're, we're willing to actually give you some money to, to do that. Yay. Um, let me see the contract. What contract? <laughs> this is a gift. No, no, no. We'd like to see the contract. And what's this about you own the intellectual property and I have no rights? Um, what's that all about? Um, if I'm going to give you, you know, because once the once the, the green eye shade guys and the, <laughs> and the legal eagles get involved, they're going to look at that that 
very absolutely and, and that always ends up being things they want to talk about <laughs> and invariably it becomes you know the, the stuff that we end up having to haggle over and i i have to tell you that all universities have a lot of restrictions um due to our nonprofit status on what we can and can't do with that respect so it ends up you know we we've got to figure out creative ways that we can work together and satisfy their need to get a return on their investment because every dollar a corporation um, spends, they do a return on capital. And, you know, zero, you know, not having the results of the IP means you get to attribute zero. And that just decreases the overall and investors, particularly with quants nowadays, they look at those kind of numbers. Absolutely. And they go, why are you getting a zero return on that capital? <laughs> So, John, switching gears, I wanted to ask, I know you've been an expert witness in patent litigation. I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about your experience as an expert. <laughs> oh, no, um, you're laughing. The idea of calling me an expert is like somebody asked me, why do you think you're an expert? And I was like, wow, I never really thought of that. Um, <laughs> what I have is a lot of experience. And I've seen the good and I've seen the bad. Um, and I've done so many contracts over so many years, some of which I've come to regret, others which I've gone, yep, we did that one okay. Um, but it's a constant process. And so to say you're an expert, um, I can usually tell you what could go wrong and why. Um, can't always predict if it's going to go right, but I can suggest the things that need to happen. But as an expert witness, what you're doing is oftentimes there is a dispute. They're arguing and they're always arguing over what does this language mean? And typically the way it's phrased is to somebody normally skilled in the art, how would you read this language to me? And it's interesting because I've done it from a corporate standpoint, Martin Marietta. I've done it from an academic standpoint. I participated in it from a biotech startup standpoint. So I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it from all sides. And in some cases, I actually get both sides calling me at the same time. And it's always interesting because they can never tell me the facts. They can't tell me who the participants are. They can just kind of give me broad outlines. And there have been a couple of three cases where it's like, I've already heard this one. <laughs> um, and, you know, you have to pick which side you think um, is, is, you know, most likely to prevail or where you believe the arguments. Um, I've, I've got a pretty good track record, uh, but it's, it's in part because I have done this so often. I, I, I believe I understand how the, the language is being used, but I also have done it for so long. And obviously these disputes tend to be ones that happened 20 years ago. So it's what, what did it mean back then versus what does it mean now? Um, and I've gotten in a bunch of those. Because the language has changed. We've become much more um, precise, I guess, is, is the term I would use, because we've identified areas where the language was a little loose and, and how it was interpreted might be a, a little bit more vague. Um, but that's what you end up doing is, is you go, you try to put yourself in the shoes when they were negotiating. And, and you, to the extent that they can do this during some discovery, find out what was on people's minds, what were they... And it's fun because I've been there. I've been there and I, and I know how I can almost anticipate when, when, you, when they said that, 
here's what the response was. And when that response came, I bet you this is what they And then you go back and you go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what. Then this is what they, if that's the case, and I think I got it, this is what that meant. Well, switching gears again, John, I know you're a member of the Baidol Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in the coalition? Well, it's, the Baidol Coalition is, is important just to keep some of the arguments that we were talking about earlier um, in front of people and, and to remind people of the history. Because, as I said, these arguments keep getting recycled. Um, it, it's deja vu all over again. Um, it's interesting because Norm Latker, in his infinite wisdom, predicted this was going to happen and it was going to continue to happen and that we had to, you know, we had to be prepared. And and I have tons of, of respect for Joe Allen for just continuing to be the passionate advocate. Um, the interesting thing is Joe and I've known each other for, what, 40 years or so. Um, he hasn't changed. I mean, and the arguments... I, People say, oh, yeah, well, that was, you know, that's what the, you're saying now, but that's not. No, we've said this from the beginning, our arguments. And so just being able to capture something that can be sustained, that captures the the rich history and benefit, I give him props for, for doing that because we're going to need it. Um, as you can already see, you know, people are going to constantly be chipping away at the edges of this and they are going to continue to do that. And but for having institutional history, people are going to forget why these things happen or they're going to reinvent what was meant, which is what's going on right now. People are reinventing what the language means and they're just totally off base. And, and to make these random assertions that um, senators buy and don't two of the most ethical human beings I ever had the good um, opportunity to meet. To say that they were in the pocket of the pharmaceutical, give me a freaking break. I mean, not in 1980 they weren't, and they sure as heck weren't after that. I mean, yeah. I mean, did did Senator Dole do some commercial? Yeah, but they were never on the take. That that's that's just that is just egregious. Now, switching gears again, I wanted to ask you, John, about equity, diversity, and inclusion, because this is a really important topic that's being discussed in tech transfer offices all around the world. I wanted to get your thoughts about what you think tech transfer offices are doing well with respect to EDI and what you think they might need to work on. Let me start with the history of tech transfer in general, because tech transfer as a profession has always been one of equality, particular gender equality. Um, it's funny when I sit down and I consider who my professional friends and colleagues are, it is overwhelmingly dominated by Lita Nelson, Kathy Koo, Carrie Willey. I mean, these are giants who helped form this whole profession and they are my closest friends. I mean, and, and I look at the major offices you know, there's gender equality, and that's great. I applaud that. Um, the idea of creating more diversity, I always support that because, you know, I, my office, I've always run like Lincoln's cabinet. And I don't know if you understand, if the readers understand. Lincoln always thought that having reasoned debate was always the best way to arrive at the best decisions. And you can't do that by having everybody think alike. 
which, by the way, I think may be part of the problem with current politics nowadays. Um, present administration, previous administration has cases in point. You need people who are going to give you a rich diversity of perspective. Now, I don't think that that necessarily comes with your with your race or your gender or whatever, but having diversity of opinion is critically important. And therefore, I I am not only 100%, I think it is critically important that every office have that as a goal. And in order to do that, we have to realize that we have not always been as inclusive as we should be. Um, but this is a young profession. <laughs> it hasn't been around that long. Um, and so we're still learning. But actually, I think it's a great crucible for actually putting the pra- principles into practice. And we should. And I, I am blessed that we had a, once upon a time, long time ago, we had a, um, an issue with a, an employee in my office. And the employee claimed bias. And we had to go through HR, had to bring in a group, we had to look at it. And I was pleased that one of the first observations that the um, consultant who was doing the analysis said is, my office looked like the United Nations. Yes, that's exactly That's really good. John, you've had an absolutely amazing career in tech transfer. Um, As we finish the podcast here, can you tell us what your career has meant to you and what you're most proud of? So what it's meant to me is it, it gave purpose to my life uh, in many respects because I got to put um, the principles of things that I grew up with sitting around the dinner table with my mom and my dad into practice. Um, and that that's not just from a personal, professional, educational background. It's my faith um, that I actually got to do that. I got to be surrounded by these amazing mentors who taught me principles on how to build relationships and maintain relationships with so many people over a long time. And the fact that um, I was allowed to do it at a place like Yale, which, as I said, wasn't really my first choice, um, actually has been one of the most satisfying, gratifying things in the world. I mean, if you look um, at just some of the life-saving therapeutics like Zeret, and other things that have come through the pipeline during my tenure at Yale. I, I just, I'm, um, I'm overwhelmed. Um, and even things that at first I was very embarrassed by, which were things like um, the, the um, Gubra around um, drug prices for HIV uh, therapeutics in South Africa, which ended up being a major embarrassment for Yale and, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Led to, a, led to a huge change um, in terms of the way pharmaceutical industry deals with things and, and the way universities deal with pharmaceutical companies for um, some of these drugs um, and making them available in, in lesser developed countries. Um, just being part of that shift, I think um, I'm very proud of. And, and I, I saw this when the book Mountains Beyond Mountains uh, was, was published and it was about um, Dr. Farmer and his AIDS clinics in Haiti um, back in the early days of the HIV crisis. And reading the book and I'm sitting there and and he's describing, you know, the pressure he's under to treat these patients. And then all of a sudden, you know, the prices drop and suddenly he's able to get access to the drugs. And I realized I was there. 
I was actually, I actually got to help make that happen. Um, maybe not because I had the foresight to see, but at least we responded well, um, particularly Bristol-Myers Squibb, but also Yale. We, we responded well to that, and we realized it was an opportunity to exert leadership in that area, and we did. And I'm, I'm proud of the institution for doing that, um, and I think that will be you know, one of the lasting legacies. Um, so you know, I guess it gave meaning to me, my life, and it did it in a way that I think will have um, a legacy value. People will never remember it was me. In fact, you know, in the book, that's not really the whole. But when I read it, I realized that's what he's talking about. Um, and that's great. That's fabulous. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? I've got an email that's really easy to remember. It's my name, john.soderstrom at yale.edu. Great. Well, thanks so much again, John. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.